The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. This is a good one today. We're getting closer to the holidays. Well, we've already crossed a couple of holidays, Halloween, Thanksgiving, but I'm talking about the big ones. The big take a week off work, Christmas, if you celebrate Christmas, and New Year's, if you celebrate that. Does anyone not celebrate New Year's? <laughs> maybe, maybe there are some, but it's a secular holiday. It's based on a calendar. Should be in February, but that's beside the point. Gar's looking at me funny. Of course it should be in February. We have enough holidays. Crowd it all together. Let's stretch them out. We could have it on the Monday after Super Bowl. That's the day everyone wants as a holiday. That's the day we need a break. We're exhausted by then. I'm off the track. I mean, not everyone celebrates the new year and finds something special to do. They just go to bed early. Sometimes I don't either. 2017 was a horrendous year by just about any measure, at least here in America, and yet I'm sorry to see it go. I'm sorry to say goodbye to 2017. I'm not nostalgic for it, exactly. It was a horror show. Like any horror movie, I'm glad it's over. But it means I'm a little older. My kids are a little older. What's to celebrate about that? Oh, that's life, I guess. I'm certainly glad whenever the sun comes up each day, it beats the alternative, as they say. And when the sun comes up, the calendar marches forward, and we have milestones. It's inevitable. Our odometer turns over. We hit round numbers. We hit the ends of cycles. And that's... Do you jump up and down screaming when you have a birthday? Maybe when you're 16, or... 18 or 21, but 59 or 37 or 76? So why should we go screaming about New Year's? <laughs> Happy holidays, everyone. <laughs> Just more of the sunshine and good cheer that you can come to expect from the history of literature, I suppose. But hey, let me redeem New Year's for a moment. Whenever I hear people say there's a war on Christmas, I think, well, hey, what do you have against New Year's? Because when I say happy holidays, I don't mean I'm afraid to say Merry Christmas. I mean, select two choices. <laughs> I am wishing you happy multiple holidays. That's what the S is for. Select from the following menus. The first menu is religious holiday of your choice. Your options are Christmas, Hanukkah, and so forth. And the second pull-down menu only has one option, New Year's. It doesn't matter who you are, I'm wishing you that. It's holidays, right? It's plural. You don't wish someone a Merry Christmas and a Happy Hanukkah. That makes no sense. The plural comes from New Year's. And if you say Merry Christmas, you leave it out. And you shouldn't... Leave it out. New Year's is great. You get together with people. 
Maybe some people are a little tired of their families at that point, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, you're ready to see some fresh faces, some friends. So New Year's is about friends and about celebration. It's an excuse to celebrate. And hey, there's nothing wrong with that. I like excuses for things. St. Patrick's Day is an excuse to think about Ireland. Wear some green, have a pint of Guinness. Why not? What's the harm in that? And speaking of Ireland and Guinness, we have James Joyce today. We're going to be looking at his college years and his early 20s and how he came to write Dubliners and why it matters. It's, I read a new, a new-ish biography of Joyce recently, and it's wonderful. I learned all kinds of wonderful things about the young Joyce that I don't remember ever knowing. Like many of you, I suppose... Long ago, I read the Richard Elman biography of James Joyce, which is massive and authoritative. Well, we've progressed in our knowledge. That book was written a long time ago now, and as good as it is, or was, we have access to a lot of materials that Elman didn't. This biography takes advantage of that, and we'll be bringing you some news based on that soon. But let me finish up on the holidays and New Year's Eve. We're trying, we're trying, people. We're trying to get through. Let's read an email. Those always lift my spirits. There are ways to lift spirits. Good books. Having some time to read. Getting a little fire going in the fireplace, but also in my mind. That's what a good book does. I feel like my mind is just a, an empty space in my skull. A whole a set of bricks. An empty, cold hollowed-out place. It's abandoned. There's some dust in there, gray ash lying on the floor. And then I read a book, and I realize there's some wood in there, too, some nice dry firewood piled neatly. And some oxygen rushes in, swirling around. And I can take a match or two, light it to the tinder, and suddenly... There's a little warmth in there, cooking in my mind. That's what the book does for me. It gets me going a little bit. Ah, speaking of getting going, <laughs> there's a reminder from my producer that we need to keep things upbeat here. So he's pulled out one of my soft spots, the nostalgia I have for this album, Herb Alpert's Christmas album. takes me back. The sweet sounds of Mr. Albert. Oh, yes! <laughs> there he goes! anything cooler than this there we go i remember the record playing on the hi-fi with my sister and me on the floor reading away snow falling on our wisconsin front yard the heat blasting out of the vents we had central heating it was a very modern house built in 1971 and it had not only central heating but a central vacuum 
the central vacuum. You plugged your vacuum cleaner into the wall, and it just roared into life and cleaned things automatically. And my mom in the kitchen, living her 1970s life with a hairdryer that you sat under, just like at the beauty parlor, wearing a bathrobe, standing over the stove, stirring a pot. And this is <laughs> here's the best part of my memory. She's smoking a cigarette, waving it around as she dances to Herb Alpert. Why is that so good? She's She never smoked. <laughs> never. She tried a cigar once when she was 10, which her clever father instructed her to do, knowing that she'd get sick and never wanted to try it again. So she wasn't a smoker, but in my memory, she has a cigarette because that was her era. That was where we lived. That was the world we lived in. My very cool aunt smoked, for example. All the coolest grown-ups in the 70s seemed to smoke. All the movie stars, all the people on TV, and so my mom did too, because she had some coolness to her, even though she was a mom and a teacher. She listened to this. Herb Albert. It's still cool. So that puts me in a better mood. Let's try to be a little more positive. We can... Imagine something warm and heartwarming. Hopefully we all have something like this in our past. If we can breathe some life into it, find the right details, maybe we can make something to keep us on board, keep us on track, something cheery. We'll try to do that with James Joyce. He was gloomy in those years. The years we're going to be looking at, he was irascible, irritable, poor, misunderstood, frustrated most of the time. But he also laughed. He laughed hard. He laughed. Once he was walking through the streets of Dublin, and he laughed so hard that an old lady appeared and shook an umbrella in his face to try to make him stop. That's joy. That's true joy. So, here's our email. Oh, excuse me, there's someone knocking at the door. Yes? Hello. This is Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, my. Edgar. That sound you hear. Hmm? Bricks. Bricks. Bricks being placed one by one in a wall not six inches from my person. Oh, dear. Bricks set by my enemy, Fortunato. I am to be entombed, it seems. Oh, my. A pity, really. I have so much more to give. <laughs> if only my saviour, that noble whelp Jack Wilson, would come to my rescue. Noble whelp? He's outside of Fortunato's castle, attempting to bribe the footman. But I fear he lacks sufficient funds. <sighs> oh, won't you help him? You hard-hearted book lover. Won't you help him? And me? <laughs> Edgar. <laughs> I'm not sure it's the best thing, Edgar, to insult our listeners. Hard-hearted book lovers. Well, I could use the help. That footman is not an easy customer. And neither are the forces of the internet who charge me plenty of things to bring you this show. I've... Oh, I don't know why these characters keep popping up. First Oliver, then Elizabeth Bennett. You know, 
<laughs> you know what my favorite part of the Elizabeth Bennett one was? It was the way she introduced herself. Gar, can we can we play that a little bit so we can can we just hear the start of that one? All right, the knock at the studio door. It opens. <laughs> a dream. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bennett, star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. Yes, right there. Stop Here it. to deliver okay. a morsel of news, <laughs> Mr. Darcy. I'm Elizabeth Bennett. Star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. Do you think? <laughs> do you think that's how she refers to herself? Star. I'm the star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. She's sort of earned it, right? Anyway, we're trying to help these people, Oliver and Lizzie and poor Edgar. And for that, we need your help. You can just. Head on over to patreon.com slash literature and sign up for a small contribution. Why not join the club? The friends of the show who are helping to keep things running here at the Jack Wilson studio, you can pay as little as a dollar a month. It goes on the credit card or comes out of a PayPal account. And as always, it would be much appreciated. Buy me a coffee, buy me a beer. You know how this works. Because you do this with your friends. And that's what I hope I am. You can also buy some History of Literature swag at historyofliterature.com slash shop, mugs, tote bags, and virtual coffees. Okay, the email. This week's email comes from Morgan, who writes, Hello, Jack. First and foremost, I want to simply express how fond I am of your podcast. Also, I thought I would offer an episode suggestion. Films about poets and poetry. Maybe a little outside of the show's breadth, but in the last two years alone, there have been several fairly high-profile films released that fall into this category. Patterson, A Quiet Passion, Neruda. Films about poets, Morgan. I think that's a fascinating idea. I think we've done one on great adaptations you may want to check out, but we haven't really zeroed in on films just about writers or poets. There are some really good ones out there. It's a great idea. The email continues additionally. I was hoping to get more info regarding your comment about Conrad and Ford Maddox Ford staring into each other's eyes for kicks, as mentioned in your Heart of Darkness episode. I'm not sure it was for kicks. <laughs> they were doing some soul exploration. Anyway, the email continues. The mental image has brought me much joy over the last couple of weeks, and I would like to know where I can learn more about the event. Well, Morgan, it is a great event. It's such a fascinating image. I believe it did happen. How could anyone make that up? Maybe it was exaggerated how long it was. I'm afraid I don't have the answer for you today. I'm going to have to do some more research. I'm pretty sure it was in a book by Ford Maddox Ford. I went through a period where I read a lot of Ford Maddox Ford a long time ago. I probably read 10 or 12 books by him, which frankly is probably more than I needed. But I was in another rabbit hole. Anyway, he wrote A Remembrance of Joseph Conrad. It might be in there. And he also wrote a book about his own life as an editor. I think it was in one of those two. But I will look it up and let you know. The email concludes. Many thanks and keep doing your thing. It's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for the email, which I found wonderful. I'm very glad to have you as a listener, Morgan. And I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Okay, let's get started. James Joyce, young Jimmy Joyce. James Disgustin Joyce, one of his friends called him in those years. The struggling writer, the incipient genius coming to grips with his talent, 
and the writer who's roaming the streets of Dublin at night, watching people, collecting stories, eventually falling in love and writing all of his stories down and battling with publishers. That's the story of the Dubliners. James Joyce, the author of The Dubliners, it's a story about stories. Coming up. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Hey, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. We're dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh. All the fields we go, laughing all the way. Bells on bobtail ring, making spirits bright. Okay. Let's get a few things in place, a few details about Joyce and the rest of his career so we can see where Dubliners fits in context. James Joyce was an Irish author born in Dublin in 1882. He wrote Ulysses, a modernist masterpiece that is often regarded as the greatest novel of the 20th century. That book tells the tale of a man's journey during a single day in Dublin. The character's name is Leopold Bloom. The book parallels Homer's Odyssey in a range of literary styles, perhaps most notably the stream-of-consciousness style that became hugely influential and for many readers and critics captured the fragmentary piecing together of an identity that represents the entire modernist movement. That's Ulysses, published in 1922. Joyce also published Finnegan's Wake, which did a similar project, but at night. The Dreamscape, or Nightscape, Nightmare, in 1939. Before Ulysses, he had published a portrait of the artist as a young man in 1916, and before that, in 1914, he came out with a collection of short stories that he called The Dubliners. Now, we can see in The Dubliners many of the ideas, both artistic and personal, that later blossomed and flourished in works like Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. Joyce was forming his interests, his sensibility, his hopes and dreams, his commitment, his viewpoints, his talent. Some of this was fully formed, and some was still in the process of being formed. In any case, The Dubliners is a masterpiece. We can view it with more interest, knowing what was in store for Joyce, what he had in him, that he wasn't just an isolated Irish writer with a gift for tight prose and keen observation. 
He was someone with the desire and ambitious and the genius to blow a hole in literature, to put his mark on the world, to stake a claim on the history of literature with one of those works that's a before and after work. There's a before Ulysses and an after. It changed everything. You wouldn't say that about the Dubliners, necessarily, but in some ways it doesn't matter. They're brilliant in their own way. Some readers might even prefer them. They're certainly more accessible. I reread them every year at the holidays, culminating in the long short story, The Dead on Christmas Eve. I've read Ulysses, I don't know, four or five times. I haven't read it every single year. I haven't read it 25 times, as I have the Dubliners. Here's one way to think of the Dubliners. I heard this once about Picasso, that you will find among his drawings and sketches these beautiful, naturalistic drawings. His art that's more familiar to us, paintings like Guernica or the Cubist paintings, those had ideas behind them, theories of art and the nature of the visible, modern ideas, things that matched their time and their era, that meant to more to us, perhaps, than a mere reproduction of, say, a bird with every feather perfectly in place, as naturalistic as a photograph. That wasn't the style. That wasn't what we were looking for from art. That didn't push boundaries in the way that we had come to expect in the 20th century. That's what his father did, as I understand it. He was a naturalistic painter specializing in birds. And at one point, when Picasso was still young, his father gave him his brushes and said, you have surpassed me. Because Picasso, for all of his exploration, for all of his invention, for all of the ways that he changed art, followed leads, followed movements, created movements himself, for all that, he had the skill and the talent to paint a very natural bird with every feather in place. There's a hint of that in Joyce as well, in the story of Joyce. The way that he was able to master the craft of the short story in a Chekhov or Maupassant style before he went on to his more modernist works. Yeats, John Millington Singh, Sometimes people pronounce it as singe. Other Irish artists and poets, they saw Joyce as a new, young, incredibly gifted writer. But we'll get there. Joyce, in his later years, became kind of reclusive, kind of cramped, kind of sad. His health was failing, his eyesight bad. He was broke. He drank too much. His reputation as a fanatic devotee, a, a kind of monk, living, devoted to his art. He would spend 10 hours on a single sentence and that kind of thing, those kinds of stories. All that clouds what we think of him as a young man. We apply it retroactively to him as a young man. So in this episode, I want to focus just on him in those years. Not even the man who wrote a portrait of the artist as a young man, certainly not the one who wrote Ulysses. The James Joyce who went to college and surprised everyone with his brilliance, who immersed himself in Ibsen and Shakespeare and everything else he could get his hands on, who gave lectures, 
who harangued his friends with long disquisitions on literature and art and philosophy and life, who railed against his upbringing, his Catholicism, the oppressive nature of certain aspects of life in Ireland, and who roamed the streets at night with his friends, telling funny stories, exchanging witticisms, people watching, getting into trouble, carousing, sometimes with encounters of encounters with women of easy virtue and other euphemisms. That was all very formative for Joyce, but I liked the people-watching part and the note-taking. His friends accused him once after he, they were at a pub and he disappeared for a long time into the bathroom, and he came out and they said, you're writing it all down, aren't you? You're writing down the things that just happened, the things we just said. And they were probably right. He was learning how to be an adult, but also learning how to be a writer. For James Joyce, there was never much distinction between the two. He even complained after he fell in love with Nora, and the flush of their first love faded into the routine domestic life. He complained that she treated him like the other men she'd known. He was that convinced of his special status. Why couldn't she see it too? Or she did see it. She counted on him making money through his writing, after all. But maybe she didn't defer to it enough. So, let's back up a bit and look at his years before Nora. After Jesuit high school, before Nora, the college years, Joyce started at 16, started college at 16, attending University College in Dublin, made friends quickly, and he encountered literature in a big way. His biographer, Gordon Bowker, tells us that Joyce, in his first year of college, read Carlyle, Newman, Macaulay, De Quincey, Ruskin, Suderman, Denuncio, Dante, Zola, Turgenev, Pater, Yeats, Blake, Metterlink, Arthur Simmons's book, The Symbolist Movement in Literature, and above all, Ibsen, which came to him in part via George Bernard Shaw's work, The Quintessence of Ibsenism. Ibsen was a model for Joyce as an artist, but also as a person. Ibsen had a modern sensibility. He rejected strict forms of morality that hampered art, and he resolved the tension between realism and symbolism, which Joyce recognized as fundamental to literature as it then stood. That was the big project. There's a tension between realism and symbolism. How will art resolve that tension? Joyce wrote Ibsen letters, fan letters, and even believed for a time that he himself, that Joyce himself, might be descended from Norwegians due to some Scandinavian invasions of Dublin that had happened once upon a time. Ibsen wasn't his only interest, though. There was also Shakespeare and drama in general. And, of course, he had interests in language and linguistics and music. He wrote poems and was fascinated by the musicality of poetry. He was an observer and could come across as reserved and cold, someone who hangs back, watches, passes judgment. One of his friends in those years said that he shook hands, Joyce shook hands with, quote, a frozen mitt, end quote. But I think a different story probably tells us much about what Joyce was really like. He went to a dance and asked a girl for a waltz. 
Joyce was a good dancer, but didn't really know how to dance as a couple. So he didn't give his partner much guidance. And she was confused about what to do, where to go, which step to take, what direction they were headed in. And so he whispered to her, hold my thumb. And she said, what? How can I do that? Because he had misheard, hold my, sorry, she had misheard his hold my thumb as being hold my tongue. And Joyce whooped with delight and kept dancing. That's the Joyce I like. That's the young Joyce. We see stories like this over and over, a love for life, a kind of gusto, and a love for language too, and wordplay and absurdity. This is the Joyce that roams around the streets of Dublin at night with the moonlight glinting off the cobblestone, side streets and alleyways, and the young men, he and his friends, outdoing each other with their wit and their flirtatious encounters and their banter and their energy and their delighted whoops. And underneath it all is a passion for literature. He'd stay at the library until it closed at 10 p.m. every night, filling his head with literature, seeing where it would take him, and then disappear with his friends to explore Dublin. It's a perfect combination, perfect cocktail for the man who was about to write The Dubliners, who's already starting to think about it and think about other books too, Portrait of the Artist. Joyce was making a name for himself academically too, There's a wonderful story about a lecture he gave where he argued for literature's importance. And he swept across Shakespeare and Ibsen and everything else he was reading. He was crossing boundaries. He cited Ibsen's play about syphilis, for example, and he took on cultural nationalism, which was big in Ireland at the time, and religion, which was also big in Ireland at the time, and conventional aesthetics, which was big at least in the university. So afterward, he stayed behind as one after another of the members of the audience stood up to denounce him for the views that he had just espoused. And here, we hear that Joyce was even better, fending off all of his critics, ad-libbing his responses, drawing upon his reading and experience and the quickness of his mind to shoot the critics down one by one, except that it wasn't exactly logical. Joyce, I think, was often so far ahead of everyone that it seemed as if he was not addressing the issues, but only because he could see so many moves ahead that he was far beyond them. And afterwards, a student came up to Joyce and pounded him on the back and said, Joyce, that was magnificent, but you're raving mad, (laughs) which was the consensus view of those in the hall. But Joyce didn't see any of that. When he spoke about his performance later, he described himself as being measured and rational, reasonable. That's that's Joyce. That's Joyce, who he was then and who he would be for many years to come. Others needed to keep up. What he said, what he did, what he wrote, it all made sense to him. Others needed to keep up or he couldn't be bothered. He wrote a play and submitted it to a theater company, the director sent it back and said, you have talent, and quote, possibly more than talent, end quote, but that the play was wildly impossible. That's the quote, wildly impossible. 
That was Joyce. Brilliant, unformed, reading until late, roaming the streets after that, collecting anecdotes and insights that he referred to as epiphanies. Laughing, wild, stuffed with literature, energetic, uncompromising, and a bit of a an enigma to others who couldn't quite keep up, who saw in his work that it was wildly impossible, maybe talented, maybe more than that. That's Joyce in college. And then he graduated. Joyce at 20 started getting serious about becoming a writer professionally. He had the devotion to art and the talent. Now he tried to get the attention of the Irish literary scene, and that wasn't too difficult for him. His brilliance and his already growing reputation opened doors. He showed some of his epiphanies to a newspaper editor who read them and immediately wrote to the poet William Butler Yeats. Here's a quote from his letter. I want you very much to meet a young fellow named Joyce, whom I wrote to Lady Gregory about half-jestingly. He's an extremely clever boy who belongs to your clan more than to mine and more still to himself. <laughs> Turning the page here. But he has all the intellectual equipment, culture, and education which all our other clever friends here lack. And I think writes amazingly well in prose, though I believe he also writes verse and is engaged in writing a comedy, which he expects will occupy him five years or thereabouts as he writes slowly. Moore, who saw an article of this boy's, says it is preposterously clever. Anyhow, I think you would find this youth of 21 with his assurance and self-confidence rather interesting. It's a very nice portrait of Joyce as a young man. <laughs> People didn't know what to do with him. <laughs> That's the impression one gets. But they do recognize his intelligence, his brilliance. The the author of that letter went on to add, The first specter of the new generation has appeared. His name is Joyce. I have suffered from him, and I would like you to suffer. <laughs> How's that for a recommendation? <laughs> Yates, who was in his late 30s and already established, met with him, met with Joyce. They had a curious relationship. They were both Irish, of course. They had that in common. They were both supremely talented, both devoted to lit literature. But they had many differences, too. Yeats was Protestant, grew up in uh, more privilege than Joyce, and he had a kind of fascination with aristocracy and with Irish folklore. Joyce was Catholic. He was from the lower middle class, was fascinated by the back streets of Dublin. Yeats believed in cultural nationalism, which Joyce thought was backward and provincial and stifling, artificial, artificially limiting, ruinous to art. Yeats believed in formal meter. Joyce wanted to smash it wherever he could. Yeats asked Joyce to read some of his poetry, and Joyce said, I do, since you ask me, but I attach no more importance to your opinion than to anybody one meets in the street. <laughs> this is the 21-year-old meeting the I think, 37-year-old. <laughs> Yates referred to his own work as becoming more experimental. You could hear Yates. You could just hear the guy thinking, oh, you know, trying to impress the college student, a little self-conscious about his own works. 
which Joyce clearly had access to and could criticize all he wanted. So he says, my own work is becoming more experimental. And Joyce <laughs> responded, quote, that shows how quickly you are deteriorating. <laughs> and finally, in a sort of final parting shot, Joyce said, we have met too late. You are too old for me to have any effect on you. <laughs> One gets the sense that this was mostly heartfelt. Joyce probably did believe himself superior to Yates, that he had new and better ideas. It's a young man's boast. Get out of the way. It's my time now, old man. My guess is Yates saw it as such. He continued to show Joyce kindness and put him in touch with people and he hosted him later on, and he looked after him. He'd, he'd almost have to. It was clear that the young man's boast was not a total bluff. He had the brains and the ability to back it up. But Yates didn't really have to be that nice to Joyce if he didn't want to, but he took it upon himself to do so, and it's to Yates's credit that he did. Like many Irish writers, and like many other European writers, Joyce eventually determined that he had to leave Ireland in order to expand his greatness, leave his home country. He called this exile. And it was. Artistic exile, anyway. There were plenty of restrictions, as he would soon learn as he tried to find a publisher for his work. Even alluding to prostitution in a dignified way could mean censorship. But that's who he saw on the streets. How could a writer ignore it? And more to the point, why should he? Wasn't his job to capture life in all its elements, the good, the bad, the positive, the negative, the moral, in quotes, and the immoral, also in quotes? It made no sense to Joyce. If you can't even allude to it, that gets censored as if to say it should be erased. We should pretend it doesn't exist. What was the point? How could you reconcile that with your views of art and what it should do? literature, how it should reflect the world around you. So, Joyce embarked for Paris, hoping to find some more room to explore and expand, some more artistic freedom. And although he returned for a few holidays and so on, he spent the rest of his life, the next few decades, in Europe, Paris, Trieste, Zurich. Sometimes he turns up in London, usually on his way, passing through. Once in London, Yates took him around to editors, trying to find him some writing work. Joyce was always poor, always in need of money, so he tried to find him some, some work, some criticism, something he could do. The editors weren't in, so they ended up at the house of the symbolist poet, Arthur Simmons, who later called Joyce, quote, a curious mixture of sinister genius and uncertain talent. Sinister genius. That's almost comical now when Joyce is such a strong part of the canon. We don't ban Ulysses. We revere it. We don't pulp copies of his books. We put them on library shelves and add them to course syllabi. But this is still in the future. This is still when Joyce's reputation is being made and he's coming across as a sinister genius. Being a sinister genius can also be lonely when you're living through it. Here's a poem from his years in Paris that just floors me. Part of it is the line breaks, which is a little hard to convey on a podcast. So I'll read the poem and then read the line breaks so you can visualize it. 
The poem is, All day I hear the noise of waters making moan. Sad as the seabird is when going forth alone. And the line breaks here are, All day I hear the noise of waters. Next line, making moan. Next line, sad as the seabird is when going. Next line, forth alone. Yeats pointed out the line breaks when reading Joyce's poetry. He's great stuff, he said. You seem to be a little focused on line breaks, seeing what effect you can have by moving the words the way you're moving them, cutting the line where you're cutting it. And in many ways, it's a curious thing for us because Joyce, we know, has such a musical mind. He he loved opera and song, and he loved to sing himself. And he loved epigrams and headlines and language in every form. And you could say that novels were a perfect form for him because they allow you to cram everything in. It's a loose baggy monster, as Henry James called it. But they don't have line breaks. They don't really have line breaks. And so here we can see that Joyce did very well with that particular tool. He could get the pathos out of his line breaks as he's talking about the seabird going forth alone. It's a shame in some ways that he didn't get to employ it more often in his greatest works. In prose, he wasn't able to take advantage of his expertise in line breaks, but he found plenty of other things to master and to use in the service of his art. In the short stories, for example, he was economical, precise. Perhaps that's why I like the Dubliner stories so much. They've imposed an economy on him. And as a master of whatever literary form he embraced, we can see how he writes the short stories to charge up the endings. That's kind of the key. That's what everyone talks about when they talk about the Dubliners. They talk about the epiphanies. And I view those stories, they're like cars. Do you remember those toy cars that you pull back? You wind their wheels back where you, you can move it backwards on the carpet and the wheels are charging up. Do you know what I'm talking about? You move it back and back and back, and then you let it go, and the car takes off like magic. Do you know what I mean? Joyce's prose is tight, 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 and before you know it, there's all this built-up potential energy that seems to come from nowhere, and now he lets it go, and the story spins forward, and suddenly the wind is rushing around you. And you're really moving, almost like magic. That's how Joyce viewed life, too, I think. There's heartbreak and poverty and grief and sin and politics and suffering and education and church going and family and pub crawling and the sights and smells and sounds of Dublin. And it grinds and grinds and grinds, and those wheels just turn back and back and back and back and tight and tight. It's so tight, and suddenly there's a release, and things take off, and there's a kind of breathless energy and movement that goes along very quickly, a little out of control, faster than you'd expect, until it comes to a peak and a fade and a slow roll to a stop. That's how the Dubliner stories work. That's how life works, I think, for Joyce. Joyce was in Paris 
but his mind was in Dublin with all these epiphanies and all these moments that he recalled and that he had recorded brick by brick. He would say, I want to recreate Dublin brick by brick. That's what the sentences do in the Dubliners. They move that car back brick by brick. The wheels getting tighter until Joyce is going to let it go. So in Paris, when he was in Paris, his mother was worried about him. They had a, a kind of heartbreaking relationship, I think. Joyce would write her letters trying to explain himself. And we all know what this is like, right? Maybe we've been that 21-year-old or maybe we've known a 21-year-old who's like this, trying to explain themselves and their ideas and why things are different and how the older people just don't understand. And she, how should I put this? It would be like if the son says, I'm doing fine. I think I see how Ibsen has managed to free himself from the tension of symbolism and realism, and I believe I can do the same thing in prose. And the mother responds, Winter's coming. <laughs> do you have a warm sweater? <laughs> Joyce was living in a freezing room lit by candles. That's what the mother was worried about. She suggested that he buy a lamp and a stove and that maybe if he boiled some water, it would help keep things warmer. But then she wrote again and worried, I changed my mind. I'm worried you might burn yourself with it. You might have... You might. <laughs> she probably knew that he was living with his head in the clouds much of the time. He's talking about all of his art, all of his ideas about literature. He probably wasn't the right person to be heating his own apartment with makeshift forms of heat. She was a pragmatic, lower-middle-class Irish woman. She cared about his health as much as his art, and she wanted to understand him because she knew it was important to him, but she couldn't really. And once she wrote it, oh, this, oh, try not to have your heart break as you listen to this quote. Once she wrote to him, quote, As you so often said, I am stupid and cannot grasp the great thoughts which are yours, much as I desire to do so. Do not wear your soul out with tears, but be as usually brave and look hopefully to the future. End quote. If that doesn't make your throat clog up, I don't know what will. As you so often said, I am stupid. As you so often said, Ugh, how many times, Jim, Jimmy, how many times did you say that to your mother? You're stupid. And she says, I cannot grasp the great thoughts which are yours, much as I desire to do so. She doesn't even defend herself. She just says, I know. This is my limitation. You have these great thoughts. I wish I could be there with you. I can't. And then she tries to give him some practical advice. Be brave, be positive. We know how a 21-year-old probably responded to that, right? They don't say, oh, thank you, you're right. I'll try to be brave and look hopefully to the future. That's important. But that is important. 
wish we knew, I wish I knew a little more about Joyce's mother. She tried to give him some other advice of a sort later. That's a, a famous passage in Joyce's upbringing. She was dying. He came home to see her, and he read her his writing. He sat with her and read her his writing. She asked him to take communion and confession because she thought it would comfort him, but also it would comfort her to know that. And he was back in the fold, and Joyce refused. Refused to do it. Superstition. Limitation. Not going to do it. Not going to subject myself to that. There was simply a disconnect between Joyce and his mother. She believed it. She believed in it, that it was important for your eternal soul. And he disagreed with every ounce of his body. How heartbreaking that must have been. She must have been miserable, believing as she did, that her son would be headed for hell. Some of her last thoughts would be of her son facing damnation. But he must have been miserable too, angry at her for putting him in this position, for believing as she did, in spite of what he saw as the better view, for putting her this guilt on him. He must have been irritated. He must have let that show in his refusal. Later, his friends would bring this up, needle him with it, and he would put it into a famous passage in Ulysses. But it's this resolve of his, this unyielding desire to be consistent, to live out his beliefs, to not be hypocritical, to put his aesthetic ideas into practice, to live as he thought. It's part of Joyce's greatness. But it also, in the case of his mother, must have caused much pain. We're headed for the stretch of his life now where his obstinacy starts to hinder his progress with publishers. He falls in love with Nora, his great Irish muse, and they are living together in Zurich. They need money. His brother comes. They try to get some money from him. His brother gets a job. They Sometimes Joyce would show up to collect his brother's paycheck. They're broke. They're all waiting for Joyce's novel to sell. They can't wait for him to write his novel. So he teaches and tries to pick up some review work, and he tries to sell some of his short stories to help make ends meet. But this is what it was like to deal with him. Here's Joyce meeting an editor. Plenty of people helped him, tried to help him. They made connections for him. They tried their best to, to get him set up, tried to get him a little work, but it was grim. And this is what it was like when he met an editor. He was going to do some reviews for this editor. This is how the story is told in the Gordon Bowker book, James Joyce, A New Biography. Joyce had sent Louis C. Hind, editor of the Academy, a sample review, and, passing through London on his return to Paris, he called at the magazine's office in Chancery Lane, expecting a positive editorial verdict and further commissions. But Hind had not been impressed by his critical tone. In his memoirs, Eugene Sheehy tells Joyce's story of his comic encounter with the editor. Told that his review would not do, Joyce merely said, sorry, and went to leave the room. Oh, come, Mr. Joyce, 
said Hind. I am only anxious to help you. Why won't you meet my wishes? I thought, replied Joyce, that I was to convey to your readers what I considered to be the aesthetic value of the book you gave me. Precisely, said the editor. That is what I want. Well, replied Joyce, I don't think it has any value whatsoever, aesthetic or otherwise, and I have tried to convey that to your readers, and I presume that you have readers. Annoyed by this, Hein told him that if that was his attitude, he couldn't help him. And then Hein says, I have only to lift the window and put my head out, and I can get a hundred critics to review it. He said, Review what? replied Joyce, your head, and walked out. <laughs> How do you help a guy like that? How do you help a starving artist who won't bend, who won't say, Oh, well, let me, let me rethink this. How about if I take another stab at it? He was not one to bend for the sake of another's idea of what his review should be. That's just a review. How unlikely was it then that he would change something that he viewed as important as he viewed fiction to be? He wasn't going to change. The problem was his fiction was unpublishable given the norms of the time. He had plenty of admirers, but they had to reject the stories. They had things in there that they couldn't publish or they'd be arrested. Desperate, he would make a few small changes, trying to be accommodating, but the changes were never enough. And the changes that would be enough were not ones he was willing to make. You can see how his anger and his bitterness would rise over time. This was a guy who would not even comfort his dying mother by doing something he didn't believe in. And yet here he was, unable to get a word like bloody into print, and unable to soften his views on the word to the point where he could take it out. Why should he take it out? Wasn't that a word people said? Why shouldn't they read it? This is what's going through his mind. Why shouldn't it be in a book that's all about the people of Dublin, if that's a word that they say? Why not? Why not? Why are we pretending that this world doesn't exist? Joyce was such a strong combination of the highest aesthetic ideals and the most lowbrow fascinations. He was probably just the person to break down barriers. And he did eventually, though that didn't help. The young father, trying to keep his apartment, heated through the winter. So Joyce kept working on the stories. The frustration, the darkness, the anger started seeping into them. They became heavier, richer, deeper. He wrote to an editor and said, It's called The Dubliners, but it is, quote, not a collection of tourist impressions. End quote. It wasn't. It wasn't a, a happy view of quaint little Dubliners. It was life. It was digging into who the people were. The dark thoughts, as well as the cute observations and amusing stories. And his final story the one that sits at the end of the collection like a day in the life sits at the end of Sgt. Pepper. His masterpiece, The Dead, is as beautiful and artistically accomplished as anything he ever wrote, as anything anyone ever wrote, in my opinion. He was still in his mid-twenties. Comes out with this masterpiece, The Dead, and no one would publish it. 
publishers would pick up the collection, then demand changes, then nothing would happen. He would make a few changes, trying to do what he could to make it publishable because he needed it. He needed the money. The publishers would push. At one crazy point during one of these stalemates, he actually had to steal the galley proofs from the publisher. They were going to destroy the book, which they owned due to the contract, but they couldn't publish it. They viewed it as unprintable and possibly illegal for them to print. And Joyce said, I'll print it myself. And they said, you can't. We own it. So he somehow was able to steal the proofs out of the office. He said he stole them via a ruse, whatever that means. He smuggled them out, planned to publish it himself. He took them to Paris. I'll jump ahead and say there's a happy ending here. As you know, the stories eventually were published, and part of that is because he met Ezra Pound, who was kind of a guardian angel for Joyce and several others at this time. And Pound had also forced himself into the literary world in London, just as Joyce had. Pound loved Joyce's stories. For all Pound's flaws, in his earliest years, he had impeccable taste, and he was a supremely gifted talent spotter, and he was generous with those he was trying to promote. But in this Christmas season, I want to focus on Joyce. What did he lose? By being so determined, so devoted, he lost his eyesight, his health, his poverty took a toll. He was a loving family member, but irascible too, and probably caused more pain than he ever intended. And what did he gain? He brought out three masterpieces made before. Dubliners is one of them. These stories do capture a city at a moment and the people in that city. And they stand for all time. They've immortalized that era. Joyce himself recognized his debt to Maupassant, and they are in that style, but they are chiseled in English, in the music of English, in a way that was unique to Joyce. Everything we know about the Joyce who wrote Ulysses in Finnegan's Wake and a portrait of the artist as a young man can be found in the years when he was writing and trying to find a publisher for the Dubliners. He was stubborn, struggling, possessed by genius, a true visionary, even to his personal detriment. He was confused by life, often frustrated, possessed by genius, able to craft words and bleed his thoughts onto the page, but also in genius's clutches. He was drinking, finding love, finding excitement and energy in life and the lives of people around him. But he was also miserable, nostalgic, forlorn. Ireland was a place he couldn't leave mentally, a place he must love, but a place he must also leave. A world of people who warranted his pity and his scorn as well as his deepest love the restrictions it placed on him as an artist and an individual were suffocating. But his nostalgia was suffocating too. And his fondness 
and his love. All these complicated emotions are wrapped up in his beautiful story, The Dead. 11,000 words, the story builds to the end, where it all culminates in that marvelous ending, like the final harmonic chord that trembles and trembles and trembles until it fades away, though it takes so long and resonates so deeply within that it seems like you can still hear it long after it's gone. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Find us on Facebook, like us on Apple Podcasts. Do whatever you do when you're feeling kind-hearted toward a particular podcast. Or when you have something to say, send me an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Head on over to patreon.com slash literature. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash literature where Oliver Twist and Elizabeth Bennett and poor Edgar being entombed are waiting for your help. And me too, Jack Wilson. I could use a little help, but enough about me. Focus on yourself. Enjoy this time, this run-up to the holidays. We might do a special edition soon. And we have Mike P. El Presidente himself coming up with an episode on another short story master, Raymond Carver. We will look forward to that, and I hope you will too. Happy holidays, everyone. I truly hope you are finding some peace and love this holiday season. I'm Jack Wilson. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.